Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we delight to know that you are with us tonight. We know, Father, by faith that you have uh, promised that you would be with us, that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see truth, to know the words of the Messiah. We know, Lord, that you uh, have given us your truth and that uh, you are not leaving us abandoned. Yet, Lord, uh, we know that uh, as we consistently uh, turn to you, that as we read and study tonight, that we know and we have full assurance uh, that you will uh, uh, grant us an understanding. Lord, it may not be a perfect understanding, and for that we apologize. We know that uh, we are going to fall and fail and falter as we uh, press on uh, into holiness, but yet we know that uh, uh, you're not seeking perfection. You just said, lean on me and uh, I'll be your strength. And so for that, Lord, we rely on you. Rely, we rely on your Holy Spirit to open the words, to open the text, to make it come alive to us, to cause us to to want to uh, seek after, seek and thirst after hunger and hunger after uh, righteousness. Uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Father, we, we want to be pleasing to you. Uh, Yeshua, we, we uh, praise you as Lord. We recognize that you are the only one and true living Messiah of Israel and of the world. And for that, Lord, we declare your name among the nations. And we're not ashamed of the good news. We're not ashamed of the gospel. For the power of salvation unto the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so give us an audience, Lord, with those around us. Help us to not just study for study's sake, but to study so that we can do so that we can also teach others. And Lord, in so doing, uh, we also seek to share the good news with others around us. Um, be with each and every student who will be joining me tonight. I pray that you'll give them uh, ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, desire to do your will, Lord. Uh, and be with me as well as I've studied this week. I pray that you'll give me recollection of the things that are important. And I pray that you'll help me to con uh, seek practical application. For indeed... It's not about reading the words, Lord. It's about doing what you ask us to do. And therein lies the blessing. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone out to another uh, study in the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at, com at uh, Congregation Kehilat Tunavan Thornton, Colorado. And you're certainly welcome to join us each week, uh, each Shabbat. Uh, Saturday mornings for our services. Uh, head on out to uh, graftedin.com. That's our congregational website, and you can find information on service times and and things like that, as well as some of the other studies that take place there. However, I'm not even there. If you do attend, well, then tell the people that I said shalom, because I'm actually coming to you from around the other side of the world, way over in Asia. Uh, but I'm happy to join you each week, Saturday nights, from 7 p.m. to 7.45 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, you'll have to visit my own website for more details, www.tetzedtorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And um, we study Galatians every week for about an hour, and then we engage in an after-hour or after-class kind of a, a group discussion live chat where we just kind of uh, take questions and answers, and it is exclusive for those of you who are joining me live each week. So 
you will need Skype to join the group. It's Of course, Skype is free. Just create an account or join as a guest, and you'll be able to uh, jump into the live study. You'll also need either a pair of speakers or a microphone or something to that effect. Okay, uh, let's date stamp our recording. Today is February the 4th, 2017, and this is week 53, and we're starting a new chapter in the book of Galatians, of my commentary. Um, we're working our way down through the 180 or so page written notes that I've put together, which are available on my website. Um, and um, we're now in Galatians chapter 3, and we're kind of going somewhat verse by verse. It's As you know, it's not really a an every verse commentary, but we're just hitting the verses that seem to be the most relevant uh, for discussion between traditional Christians and traditional uh, Torah community members, uh, Messianics, as we call ourselves. So, um, I'll pull up the notes for us on the page in a moment, but let me just check Skype. It looks like I've got some notes. Give me a moment. Let's see if someone was trying to reach me while, we're, while we were just opening. Okay. All right. Looks like some of my students won't be able to join, so uh, just checking my notes. All right. For those of you who are with me tonight... I uh, should have the uh, the blessing on the screen that we're going to open up with just a liturgy real quick. Hebrew and then Greek, and uh, we won't belabor this uh, liturgy. I'm just going to read the traditional um, opening blessing for the Torah, for the Hebrew portion, and for the Greek, since we're starting in chapter 3 of Galatians, we'll just read the first six or seven verses from that chapter as well. But for the Hebrew, let's read this. The English of this blessing, which is very familiar to most of you, reads, Blessed art thou, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you and may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's read the Hebrew of that same blessing. The Hebrew reads... Baruchata Adonai Hamlame Toala Mo Yisrael. Baruchata Adonai Lohenu Melaka Olama Shitter Baharbanume Kulha Amim Vanatan Lanu et Torato. Baruchata Adonai Notain Ha Torah. Ivelecha Adonai Vaishmaracha Yair Danai Ponaive Elecha Vunecha Yisa Adonai Ponaive Elecha Vayasim Shlacha Shalom. Okay, let's jump over to a passage out of the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures. We're going to be studying, in, uh, we're going to be starting Galatians chapter three tonight, and we're only going to get down to probably verse maybe five or so, maybe six if we have time. So let's just read maybe the first, uh, maybe we can read the first seven verses or so, six or seven verses of Galatians chapter three. This is the ESV, the, the version I'm fond of using for my English. It reads, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it, the, the verse ends with a question. Um, so we'll stop there. We'll stop with that question. Leave it as kind of like a cliffhanger. 
All right, let's go back and read uh, some Greek that matches. Uh, let's pull up an interlinear version and go from there. And we'll stop at verse 6. The Greek reads, O anaitoi galatai tishumas abaskanen, te aletheia me pethesthai hois kat alphamus Jesus Christas proigraphias to Romanos. Verse 2. Tuta manan thelo mathen af human ex ergonamu to penuma labite e ex akois pistios. Verse 3. Hutos anoitoi este, in arxamenoi penumati nun sarki epiteleste. Verse 4. Dosauta epatet epatete eke, ege kai eke. Verse 5. Ho un epicoragon. Human to benuma kai in ergon dunames in human ex ergonamu a ex akois pistios. In the final verse, verse 6. Kathos Abraham epistusen to theu kai elogiste auto eis de kaiusunen. And we'll stop there. Alright, um, this time for this particular uh, study tonight, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through my commentary somewhat uh, quickly, meaning I'm not going to stop along the way and, and explain. This way at least I get all of it read into the uh, recording. I'll read uh, the commentary to verse 2, verse 3, and verse 5, and then we'll stop there. And then I'm going to read some some selected uh, different other resources tonight. I've got Tim Haig's uh, Torah for Jews Only article opened up on my computer, as well as I've got two websites uh, from traditional Judaism that I want to comment on as well tonight. So, um, let's read my commentary. All right, Galatians chapter 3, and we're starting in my commentary notes on the top of page 104 with this new chapter. And we've got the verse spelled out again, the one we just read in the ESV. Verse 2 and 3 reads, Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, let's read my commentary. Here are my comments. In my opinion, no other chapter of the Bible has caused more theological misunderstandings than chapter 3 of Galatians. We would do well to tread cautiously as we seek to unlock its meanings. And indeed, this is going to be one of the longest chapters in my commentary uh, to the notes to Galatians. Again, um, Shaul, I believe, returns to his irony with a rhetorical question about the origins of the giving of the Ruach Kodesh among the Galatian believers. Right? Shaul surely knows firsthand from whence the Spirit flows from God to an individual. Right? So therefore, his question is rhetorical. However, in this portion of his letter, I think that he's attempting to shock his readers back into some semblance of biblical reality. Right? I think he knows they, that they know. Certainly, Paul knows the truth, and I, I believe that Paul uh, is, is banking on the idea that his readers are genuine Christians, at least a good majority of them are and he's trying to appeal to their sensibility. Having begun with the truth of Yeshua's atoning death, Paul asks them, how could they possibly be considering going back on such a revelation? How could you turn around right in midstream? To the apostle, such a notion was ludicrously untenable. Again, when we're looking at Galatians, we and whenever we encounter the word law, we have to know, I say in my commentary, that among the Judaisms of Paul's day, that the Greek word for law, which is namos, it could include a reference to the oral traditions, and more, more specifically, to halacha that governed proselyte conversion. And I believe that this perspective helps us to understand Paul to be challenging the validity of these ethnically restricted views of Torah among genuine covenant members. Remember, this, I believe, is one of the central ways to understand this narrow phrase, works of the law, to really be describing this narrowly um, applicable, ethnic-driven uh, covenant membership. Uh, in other words, a salvation by, by, salvation by membership or salvation by, by birth or salvation by lineage, however you want to describe it. 
basically, then, Jews were born as covenant members, and Gentiles who sought covenant membership had to go through the proselyte conversion ceremony that was a man-made ceremony. It wasn't really described in the Torah, but it was modeled after Jewish identity, which the Jewish people of Paul's day had believed was central to being a covenant member. And so that's, I think, inclu- that's where uh, this phrase works of the law kind of gets its most uh, mileage in Paul. Um, but let's keep reading my commentary. Now, we know, I say, that surely... Lasting covenant membership is not acquired by human effort, viz. by works of the law, right? But rather by placing one's trust in the ultimate son of the covenant, Yeshua himself. If that's the case, our opening question from Paul might be better phrased as so. Quote, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by becoming proselytes or by believing what you heard? End quote. So I'm, I'm inserting this phrase... Um, by becoming proselytes, I'm 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 paraphrasing what Paul said, where he said by uh, by works of the law, because I think more narrowly works of the law fits in with the sociological context of Jews, Jewish people le- trying to to uh, leverage their their birth order or their 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 uh, lineage uh, in, in view of salvation. Okay, let's keep reading. Our opening question, okay, I read that part, I'm sorry. Paul provides his immediate answer. He immediately provides his answer, which is a resounding, are you so foolish, right? Paul knows it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's futile. To suppose that human achievement could in some way trump the grace of God as afforded by his only son was an exercise in futility. Let's keep reading the commentary, and then I'll go back and comment on it. The second question, then, I believe, is merely a clarification of his previous inquisition stated this time, using the explicit language of the influencers, right? Remember, the influencers are what most people recognize are the villains of the piece. Most Christians refer to the influencers as the Judaizers. But you all know that I consider this term Judaizer to be a kind of a negative, pejorative term, therefore I avoid it. I think influencers is a better, uh, kind of a more neutral term, a safe term, even though I do believe the message they were teaching was dangerous. But it's less... Uh, racially charged if we use the word influencers rather than Judaizer. So, I think Paul's using their language. Uh, in other words, the, 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 the Judaizers thought that human effort was what got you into the covenant. And it refers back to the proselyte ceremony for the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles needed to take this extra step that they weren't afforded at birth to get into covenant membership. And that's why the influencers were really, really pushing for the proselyte ceremony for Gentiles. The historic position held to by the later emerging Christian church that the apostle is pitting true faith in Yeshua against any supposed generic Torah observance in general, I believe finds no basis from the context of Paul's argument here. And I'm going to go back and visit this statement so that you can understand why I said what I said, because I think there's room for the historic Christian argument, but it needs to be couched within the... um, context of what Paul's really talking about in this letter. So there's room for both. Just hang with me for a moment and I'll, I'll, I'll explain it later. Indeed, I say in my commentary, I think that we must allow the historical and socio-religious Jewish context of the letter to determine what's driving Paul's consternation as a Messianic Jew who actually supports, and strongly so, he supports Gentile equality among non-Messianic Jews who do not support Gentile equality. Those are the, the influencers again, right? They're the, they're the non-Messianic Jews who do not support Gentile equality. If they did support Gentile equality, they wouldn't be trying to turn the Gentiles into Jews for the sake of, of, of ostensibly turning them into covenant members. In other words, Jewish people of Paul's day held to a Jewish-only covenant membership package, a Jewish-only Israel, a Jewish-only Torah. And so in that limited scope, in that, in that limited perspective, there was no room for Gentile, um, there's no room for Gentile uh, uh, identity. Gentiles must become Jews. So this is, I think, the, the context of, of Paul's letter. I go on to say that read without the clarity of context, we, speaking of the Christian church, we will forever misconstrue Paul to be teaching Gentile believers that Hashem's laws hold no valuable place in the practical application 
of the very promise inherited through Yeshua the Savior. Right? Isn't that essentially how the traditional Christian church has read and interpreted the book of Galatians? They kind of read it as Paul's polemic against Torah observance, against any sort of or returning to the law for any sort of meritorious purposes. And indeed, the Christian church come, walks away with, a, with an application of, of the book of Galatians that essentially has Christians turning away from Torah uh, altogether, not just for meritorious purposes, so to say, but for any sort of um, sanctification purpose as well. In a word, uh, traditional Christianity holds that the, 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 that, that the Torah... The ceremony, at least the ceremonial parts of Torah, hold no practical value for your Christian. That's not to say that they turn their back on the moral aspects of Torah, the so-called three uses of the law, uh, and which which we are going to talk about later on in my commentary. But I think most of you understand where I'm going with that. So I go on to say, read without the clarity of context, I think we as Christians will misunderstand Paul to be denigrating the Torah in favor of being led by the Spirit. And essentially, that's what I that's the the viewpoint that I um, that I uh, seem to gather when I visit traditional churches and speak on the book of Galatians. I, I, I get the opinion, I get the, the, the uh, 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 inference, or I, I, I believe that Christians teach or believe that, that Paul is teaching that, that you don't need to follow the Torah, you just need to rely on the Spirit. You need to, you need to choose either Torah or Spirit. And, and every single Christian I know in a traditional uh, Christian background... This includes some messianics as well, but mostly mostly traditional Christians who don't claim to be messianic. They they opt for walking by the Spirit as opposed to walking according to Torah. So we have this kind of this this disagreement over what what exactly Paul means by um, uh, uh, his words in the Book of Galatians. And then let's read verse five and its comments since they're short, and that way we'll get all of this part um, under our belt, and then we can go back and kind of pick it apart for a little bit. Okay. Verse 5 reads, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So it sounds very similar to what we just read in verses 2 and 3, and it ought to be, because I say in my comments, quote, I think that this verse, again, is restating is a restating of the previous round of rhetorical questioning. Now, it's not exactly the same. Paul's not just wasting parchment. I know there are some 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 probably more uh, uh, detailed reasons as to why he uses the, ver- the, the the words he does now. But overall, generally speaking, I think he's restating the same position. And so I didn't really get too detailed in my commentary as to what the nuances are, bet- the differences uh, between the two verses, the three verses. But I do say it this way. Obviously, by now, we know that Paul is not in favor of ethnic-driven righteousness, that's a position that's maintained by his detractors. The evidence that the Galatians are already in possession of genuine and lasting covenant status is the fact, and Paul states this, I think that's why he brings this up, the evidence that they already are in possession of genuine and lasting covenant status is the fact that the Ruach HaKodesh is indeed working among them. They are genuine. They are a genuine people of God. They've already been brought into covenant status via their genuine faith in Yeshua. Now, Paul can't can't possibly know that every single believer in Gal- or every single member in Galatia was a true believer. No pastor has that insight. That's that's truly solely only the job of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit knows who is genuine and who's not. But we can as pastors as leaders of our community uh assess the general congregation. We are commanded to examine fruit. We are commanded to look at trees which is a metaphor for people. We are commanded to to look at our members and to to know them, or at least seek to know their spiritual state of being, seek to understand if they are uh, genuine or not, and seek to assist when they aren't genuine. You know, sometimes people themselves, sometimes people deceive themselves. Sometimes they know that they're not genuine believers and they're just trying to deceive other people. But sometimes they are self-deceived. So it's it's it really is the responsibility of leaders such as Paul to to give words of wisdom and, and, and admonition and exhortation to the flock in order to exhort them to press into holiness, all the while knowing that the Spirit of God is faithful and that he is working among the group um, 
to to bring the people to the genuine knowledge of Yeshua, uh, even if all of the people aren't yet at that moment, even if, if, if even if they haven't all arrived. You understand what I'm saying? So Paul knows that the Spirit is working among them as a group, even, and we also know that the Spirit works among a group, even though everyone in the group is not a believer. That's my whole point. Recall Peter's surprise, I say, when the Ruach HaKodesh fell freely on Cornelius and company in Acts 10, verses 44 through 48. Now we could stop and ask ourselves a question. Why was Peter, a Jew, surprised? Well, the, the book of Acts actually tells us, if we were to go back and read that passage, um, and I, so I'll just give you the answer right here in my commentary. The answer that, the reason why Peter was surprised is because the long-standing belief among the Judaisms of the first century sincerely assumed that God only chose Jews as covenant partners. And we're going to read about this Jewish-only covenant membership uh, from some other documents. That's, that's why I'm trying to hurry through this part of my commentary. So that's why Peter, a Jew, was surprised that the, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Holiness was being poured out among Gentiles who had not yet undergone any conversion rite whatsoever. They were still bona fide Gentiles. And yet the Spirit of God was demonstrating their sincere covenant membership and their indeed their sincere faith in Yeshua by uh, uh, working among them. It's kind of the same concept that's going on in the book of, of Galatians that Paul's using. So Paul... Here, I say, is acknowledging the genuine work of the Spirit among his fellow Gentiles as proof positive that they were already existing covenant members and not merely Gentile to Jewish converts, quote-unquote. Right? They weren't just Jewish wannabes who were in the process of becoming covenant members like the, the influencers were saying they were, the influencers. So the final thing I'd like to say for my part, and then we'll turn to some other resources, is the question I think that Paul poses where he says um, in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? I think the question is meant to raise the issue in the minds of the Galatians as to what exactly attracts the attention of God himself. And is it flesh? That God is attracted to, i.e., ethnic status, uh, you know, Jewish membership, uh, things like that, or is it faith? Faith in God's chosen Messiah. Which one of these is going to um, uh, uh, propel God to pronounce the verdict of dikaiosune, which is the the noun version of the word righteous? righteous. Which one is going to have God bring the gavel down to declare a person righteous? And in order for Paul to answer the question, the answer is going to be given below using Avraham as the paradigm. Paul's going to turn to Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. He's going to prove to the Galatians that Abraham has already demonstrated the true path of true righteousness. And contrary to what the influencers were believing about Abraham, it was not because Abraham was a Jew. Rather, it was through something else. So, we'll, we'll dive into that next week. But first, I want to go back, back up within the remaining uh, 20 minutes or so that I have left in, in the hour. I want to go back and visit this, this notion of the first century idea that the Torah was for Jews only, and that therefore covenant membership was an, an ethnically restrictive uh, enterprise. In other words, many of you listening to my commentaries hear me say this all the time, that I believe that the first century Jews were, were kind of operating with this idea, this belief, that, uh, that they were born into covenant membership when they were born Jewish or when they were circumcised on the eighth day, and they were, that they were brought into covenant membership uh, uh, because of God's gracious election. And therefore, they weren't really trying to earn their way into covenant membership the way that the traditional Christian church stereotypically describes them, right? The Christian church today, I hear this time and time again, pastors will repeatedly teach on the book of Galatians and teach that the Jews in Paul's day thought that they had to keep the Torah to become saved. In other words, the Jewish people of Paul's day had to keep the Torah in order to become covenant members. The word salvation is is, is tantamount to saying that one is a covenant member. And yet I, I, I categorically disagree with that viewpoint because it simply does not line up with the, 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 the historical 
uh, viewpoints that we can gain from studying through some of the historical rabbinic writings and things like that. So uh, I think it becomes uh, important for us to launch from a different perspective when we're studying the book of Galatians because it helps us to arrive at a different application, and namely this, that the Torah itself doesn't need to be uh, shelved or set aside or, or, or um, cast off in favor of walking by the Spirit. Uh, and that's primarily because the Jewish people weren't even trying to use it for that purpose anyway. And therefore it becomes a kind of a wasted exegesis to, to try and make Paul teach Gentiles to, to stop keeping the Torah for the purpose of becoming covenant members. Because the Gentiles wouldn't have been taught that anyway from the influencers. See what I'm saying? So let's look at this. Um, some of you hear me say that, well, this is the way the rabbinic uh, writings talk about it, but you've never seen me actually show it to you. So I'm going to use um, the assistance of Tim Hegg's book called uh, Fellow Heirs, which is a book that's available on his uh, uh, at his website, at his, at his bookstore, TorahResource.com. And I'm openly endorsing Tim for this purpose, and therefore uh, I've gotten permission to re- uh, quote some information from his book. But I'm going to do it by quoting uh, the commentary that actually became the book. This is a comment that it's no longer available on his website. It was available oh, probably ten years ago when I downloaded it, um, more than maybe more than ten years ago, maybe twelve years ago or so. Uh, it used to be called uh, "Is the Torah for Jews Only?" Is the Torah for Jews Only? And essentially, uh, Tim used this uh, commentary uh, to become the book now known as uh, "Fellow Heirs." So, this is what I'm going to be quoting from. Anyway, here's what we've got. Tim has. Tim has done an excellent work, an excellent job of of, of uh, detailing this idea that the first century perspective was that the Torah was a Jewish-only document. And here's why it's relevant for us to understand the book of Galatians. It's not so much that the Jewish people of the first century were trying to use the Torah to become covenant members. That, that, that I think, is beco- beginning to become relevant even to Christian authors today. Although many Christian pastors who are not interested in, say, studying the new perspective on Paul, which uh, uh, puts forth the idea that, that the Jewish people were not trying to use merit theology to get into the covenant that they were instead trying to use their, their, their birth order or their ethnicity or, or something like that, their lineage, their Jewish lineage. Um, what Tim does is he shows that the Jewish people of Paul's day started their covenant membership at birth and then continued their covenant membership uh, by keeping the Torah. Or to use the words of E.P. Sanders from his book, um, Paul, is Pal- or, uh, yeah, uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, I think that's the name of the book. I keep forgetting. Uh, E.P. Sanders describes it as a getting and staying in principle. He describes it under the in, in his chapter where he talks about um, covenantal nomism. And we've already talked about this in my commentary as well. Covenantal nomism is the idea that one is born into the covenant as when they're when they were when they were Jewish, they were, when they were born Jewish, circumcised, they were born into covenant membership. And they and it's the idea that one stays in the covenant by keeping uh, the Torah by walking into the commandments, by um, avoiding gross idolatry, essentially, in a word, by avoid uh, having God label you as cut off from the covenant or cut off from the community. In other words, there's certain gross violations of Torah that will, um, if, if repeated uh, remorselessly, will cause God to uh, label you as karet, cut off. All right, let's read Tim's commentary and see what we've got. I'm just going to read section 1-1, which is basically one page, where he talks about the Torah. Well, I, I'm sorry, it is two pages. But what it's what it, what it's got is it's chock full of rabbinic um, uh, quotations. And this is going to help you see, those of you who are listening to my commentary, of where I get this idea that, uh, that, that, that it's very likely, if we can trust what, what the later Talmuds, the Midrashim, the... The, the, the later responsible literature, things like that, if we can trust what they say as an accurate or semi-accurate reflection of first century socio-religious thought on this matter, well then we can come to a safe conclusion like Sanders has, like Tim Haig has, like I have, like Mark Nanos has, like, e, uh, like N.T. Wright has, like many other well-meaning authors, Jimmy Dunn, uh, people like this. 
people who are also new Paul perspectivists like I am. We can, if we can trust what 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 the rabbinic writings have are saying today, if if they're accurate, um, if they give us any amount of background to first century Judaism, like what Paul lived, then we can come to the same conclusion that the Jewish people of Paul's day did not think that they were trying to keep Torah to become saved. They didn't use the Torah in that fashion. Let's read, and that they thought that the Torah was a Jewish only document meaning it was forbidden for Gentiles to actually even keep it, which means that the traditional Christian view that the Gentiles should also keep the Torah in order to become saved is not historically tenable. You understand what I'm saying? The Gentiles couldn't have been trying to keep the Torah to become saved because the Jews, Jews of Paul's day wouldn't have allowed that. They wouldn't have allowed the Gentiles to keep the Torah anyway. Instead, the, Gentile, the, the Gentiles would have had to become Jews first, and then the Torah would have become their their uh, opportunity for keeping. Let's read. Tim reads, uh, writes, quote, The idea that the Torah is uniquely the possession of the Jewish people and that its stipulations define Jewish identity is not something new in our times. The standard rabbinic view was that the Torah distinguished Israel from the nations. The evidence abounds. For instance, in Midrashic comments on Esther and the edict, go gather together all the Jews, which we read in Ex- uh, Esther 4.16, the issue of what characterizes the Jews as distinct from the Gentile population is raised. Let's read this quote from, let's see, this is going to be from uh, the Babli Megillah 15b. So this is the, this is the Talmud. Uh, and it reads, quote, Said the attribute of justice before the Holy One, blessed be he. Why this difference between these and the others? The Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, Israel busied themselves with the Torah. The other nations do not busy themselves with the Torah. Okay, so that's the beginning. Let's keep reading. Tim Haig goes on to say, In fact, it was the view of the Talmudic sages that the Torah was offered to every nation, but only Israel accepted it. That's a reference he puts in footnote number three to um, the Talmud at, at uh, Abu Dazarah uh, 2b. And um, so Israel is the only one who accepted this yoke of the Torah. Haig says, for some of the rabbis, this acceptance of the Torah made Israel worthy of God's election. Let's read a quote now. Let's see, footnote number four. This quote is from the Midrash Rabbah to Numbers, and it reads, quote, Why did the Holy One, blessed be he, choose them, speaking of Israel? Because all the nations rejected the Torah and refused to accept it, but Israel gladly chose the Holy One, blessed be he, and his Torah. End quote. You guys are beginning to get the picture from the rabbinic writings that God gave the Torah exclusively to Jewish Israel, and that Israel uh, recognizes this, this, this uh, ethnic election, and that Israel... Um, realizes that th- this possession of Torah spells covenant membership. So it's, it's I'm sorry, this spells, uh, spells blessing for Israel alone, and that covenant membership is kind of uh, linked to uh, being elected by God, etc., etc. So let's keep reading. Heg goes on to say, The Torah, therefore, was the distinguishing mark from the rabbinic perspective, the rabbinic viewpoint. It was the distinguishing mark that separated Israel from the nations. And this is what I meant by when I described it's not really so much that, that, that the Jewish people of Paul's day thought that they needed to really even keep the Torah specifically, so much that the Torah was their unique possession, it was their trophy, it was their it was their brand, it was their badge, it was their it was uh their um bragging point. It was their bling bling to use today's modern uh verbiage. It was it was the thing that, that that showcased and highlighted the fact that they were God's possession, um, right? It was, it was something to be cherished just for the sake of even having it, just for the sake of even possessing it, even if all Israel couldn't keep it. And they know they couldn't keep it. They knew they couldn't. But it was still their responsibility to, to try. So let's keep reading the Midrashim. This time uh, we have two quotes. One uh, Refer- uh, footnote number five is from the Midrash Rabbah to Exodus, and footnote number six is from the Sifra. So let's keep let's read these two quotes. These are within Tim Haig's commentary. The first one from the Midrash Rabbah says, quote, If it were not for my Torah, which you accepted, I should not recognize you, and I should not regard you more than any of the idolatrous nations of the world. End quote. 
And the footnote, the quote from the uh, Sifra reads, quote, Yet for all that, in spite of their sins, when they have been in the land of their enemies, I have not rejected them utterly. This is God speaking from Leviticus 26.44. The Asifer the goes on to say, All the godly gifts that were given them were taken from them. And if it had not been for the book of the Torah which was left to them, they would not have differed from all the nations of the world. End quote. So Heg goes on to say, the sages of the Talmud, attempting to understand the universal language of the Tanakh when speaking of the Torah as accepted by the nations in the end times, formulated the so-called Noahide laws as pertaining especially to the Gentiles. This need to find a way for the Gentiles to be counted as righteous without becoming a proselyte arose out of a struggle for Jewish self-identity. Remember, as I interject, from in Paul's day, the Noahide laws had not yet been officially formulated and voted upon. They were still kind of in the works. They weren't really something that was even uh, what we might call monolithic. It wasn't something that was universally accepted among all the Judaisms of Paul's day. It was something that was just kind of being tossed around as holocaust from here and there. Some communities were trying to kind of toying around with this idea of, of righteous individuals from the nations, but uh, the 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 the, the, um, the authoritative uh, ruling had not yet been given, uh, and it wouldn't even show up till even probably 200 years later, or even or even maybe 300 years later. But uh, we now know that the Noahide laws essentially became a basis for Jewish righteous people to say, well, okay, Gentiles from the nations they can be counted as righteous too without having to become Jewish, but they have to they still have to adhere to a uh, a limited set of laws, at least maybe seven laws, that God gave to Noah, who himself was perhaps the father of the Gentiles. So it's kind of like a concession, and that's kind of what's going on. So Heg goes on to describe it this way. The Gentiles could be righteous without the full Torah, since the fullness of the Torah was needed to define Israel as distinct from the nations. That's kind of what 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 we that's kind of what happens when we see the Noahide laws uh finally come into play, probably 200, 300 years after Paul. Uh, there's a quote here in Hegg's commentary, uh, footnote number 8, is from the Midrash Rabbah to Exodus, and it reads, quote, um, this is God's voice again, to the others I gave only single portions, but to you, speaking of Israel, to you I give all, speaking of the Torah that God gave to Israel. So also God gave to the heathen only some odd commandments. But when Israel arose, but when Israel arose, he said to them, and here's a quote from a passage, Behold, the whole Torah is yours, as it says, He hath not dealt so with any nation. End quote. So let's keep reading Heg. This belief that the Torah is the sole possession of Israel is the standard position within Orthodox Judaism today. And that's the, essentially what I, I maintain at least as I can gather from my own personal uh, interaction with Orthodox Jews. I, I worshipped as an Orthodox Jew for two full years at a non-Messianic uh, Orthodox uh, synagogue in, in Denver, a flagship synagogue, I might uh, add, uh, meaning it was quite large. And um, there were quite a number of Orthodox Jews there. And the, the, as far as I can tell from sitting under their teachings for two years, they essentially believe that the Torah is their sole possession. When they say it's the sole possession of Israel, they mean Jewish Israel. They believe that Israel is a Jewish-only body, a Jewish-only ethnicity. And therefore, when they say that the Torah is for Israel only, they mean that the Torah is for Jews only. And so it's kind of the, the standard position. As an example of this, Heg goes on to say, we may note the manner in which the Siddur, the prayer book, considers the Sabbath possession, the possession of Israel alone. Let's turn now to kind of a view on the Sabbath. Instead of just asking about the Torah, the Sabbath, we know in, in traditional Jewish uh, perspectives, is essentially the, um, the covenant sign. It is the wedding ring of the covenant, so to say. It's, it's the covenant marker, it's the, the identity marker that, show, that God gave to Israel to show that the, the covenant is, in fact, theirs. It's the sign of the Mosaic covenant, is what I'm trying to say. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant, by comparison, is circumcision. And the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. So let's read some uh, rabbinic commentary on whether or not Gentiles are permitted or allowed or uh, obligated to keep the Sabbath and see what they have to say about this notion. 
As an example of this, we may note the manner in which the Siddur considers the Sabbath the possession of Israel alone. In the morning service for Shabbat, we read, quote, and we're going to read a quote now, let's see, footnote number 9 is from the Mitsuda Siddur, from pages 528 to 529. Alright, this is in Heg's commentary. It reads, quote, Moses rejoiced with the gift of his portion, for a faithful servant you called him. A crown of glory upon his head you placed when he stood before you on Mount Sinai. And two tablets of stone he brought down in his hand, upon which is written the command to preserve the Sabbath. And so it is written in your Torah. And now we get a quote from Exodus. And the children of Israel shall preserve the Sabbath to maintain the Sabbath for their generations as an everlasting covenant. Between me and between the children of Israel, it is a sign for all time that in six days Adonai made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. And I believe that quote is from Exodus 31, around verses 15 and 16, something like that. End quote. So that's from the Siddur. Heg goes on to say, Immediately following the recitation of the biblical text from Exodus 31, 16 and 17, there we go, there's the address, the following is added in the Siddur, quote, and here's a, a quote from the same portion, And you, Adonai our God, did not give it to the nations, speaking of the Sabbath, you did not give it to the nations or the lands, nor did you give it as an inheritance, our king, to worshippers of idols, nor in its rest, speaking of the Sabbath, do the uncircumcised dwell. For only to Israel, your people, did you give it in love to the seed of Jacob, whom you chose. End quote. So notice we have traditional Judaism stating quite explicitly that not only is the Torah the sole possession of Jewish Israel, but that the Sabbath itself, being the sign of the of the Mosaic covenant, was not given to the nations of the lands, nor was it given to uncircumcised. It was only given to Israel. Let's keep reading. Elbogen notes that, this is Heg, Elbogen notes that though this paragraph from the Siddur is generally contained in the Siddurim since the time of not Maimonides, sorry about that, uh, the Rambam, though not always in the same section of the service, the words, quote, you did not give it are lacking in a number of the texts. The fragments of the Siddur from the Cairo Geniza, for example, Heg says, Begin the additional paragraph with, quote, The Gentiles do not sit in its Sabbath shade, nor do the uncircumcised enjoy its rest, end quote. Here, the words uncircumcised encompasses all who are not Jewish or have not become proselytes by the rabbinic ritual. Did you catch that? Thus, Heg goes on to say, The emphasis upon the Sabbath as a unique identity mark for Jews gave rise to strong denunciation of non-Jews who kept the Sabbath. So we've got Gentiles who are not circumcised, who are forbidden from keeping the Sabbaths, essentially. Unless they then become Jewish people by uh, undergoing the proselyte ritual. And we've got some more, coach, uh, some more quotes. Uh, footnote number 12 is from the Bavli Sanhedrin, uh, which is, of course, the Talmud. Uh, 58b, um, Resh Lachesh said, uh, even who keeps a day of rest deserves death, for it is written in a day a day and a night they shall not rest, and a master has said their prohibition is their death sentence. End quote. Um, even teaching the Torah to Gentiles was discouraged. We've got a quote now from the Bavli Chagiga 13a, which corresponds to the Bavli Sanhedrin 59a as well. So two places in the Talmud uh, have this quote, which is, uh, Rabbi Ami further said, the teachings of the Torah are not to be transmitted to an idolater. And the idolater there, I, I think the original Hebrew or Aramaic word is a stargazer. Um, so an idolater, which was really kind of a, a synonym for the Gentiles. Um, for it is said, he hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. End quote. So thus, Heg goes on to conclude, it would appear that in vying for self-identity, the Jewish sages who lived after the destruction of the temple took the Torah particularly the visible covenant signs prescribed by the written Torah and defined by the Ora Torah. These, the sages took these signs, they took the Torah as the unique, quote, badge, end quote, of Jewish identity, meaning it was no longer envisioned as something to be shared with the Gentiles. Do you see my point there? I think Tim Hegg is, is basing his analysis on the study that uh, E.P. Sanders and James D.G. Dunn have done and I think this is why it's valuable for us to consider those particular uh, commentaries. 
This, this viewpoint that we're describing was particularly true of the oral Torah, which of course is the traditions of the sages that were passed down from generation to generation. Um, this particular view about the Torah being the sole possession and the unique badge of Jewish identity. And Heg goes on to conclude that its role in establishing Jewish identity in the face of the emerging Christian church who declared herself to be the true Israel is addressed also in the rabbinic literature. You have to remember, uh, as I interject, that the rabbinic literature that we that we have in our possession today, the mission of the Talmud and things like that, they were written at a time when the Christian uh, communities were already trying to self-identify over and against the existing Jewish communities. There was a kind of a competition of identity going on already. Who was the true Israel, so to say? And so it's within that kind of worldview, that challenge, that the rabbinic literature be, started to become extremely what I call reactionary or um, polemic. In other words, a lot of their writings started to reflect anti-Christian bias and things like that. So let's read about that. Anti-Christian, which was read as anti-Jewish. I'm sorry, anti-Gentile, anti-Gentile. So let's read a quote here. This will be the final quote in, in Hegg's commentary. And this one, footnote number 14, is from the Midrash Rabbah to Numbers. That's a lengthier quote, and it reads, quote, God gave the Israelites the two Torahs, the written Torah and the oral Torah. He gave them the written Torah with its 613 ordinances to fill them with commandments and to cause them to become virtuous, as it is said, Quote, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness, end quote. I'm sorry, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to increase the Torah and to make it glorious, end quote. And, the, the, uh, the, the uh, rabbinic literature goes on to say, and he gave them the oral Torah to make them distinguished from the other nations. It was not given in writing so that the nations should not falsify it as they have done with the written Torah and say that they are the true Israel. i got to pause right there and just let that part sink in. Because that's essentially replacement theology. Is it not? Is that, in fact, how the, the, the replacement theologians spin their view of Israel, saying that they are the true Israel, that they are the replacement of Israel, that, that apostate Israel was broken off, according to Romans chapter 11, it's all of true theology, and that the new Israel, the new Christians, have been, have been grafted in and have taken the place of apostate Israel? Right, so you can see why the, rabbinic, the, the 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 sages are starting to write these things. Let me read that one, that statement again. It was not speaking of the oral Torah. It was not given in writing so that the nations should not falsify it as they have done with the written Torah, and say that they are the true Israel. Therefore, it says, and here's a quote from Hosea: "If I were to write for him the many things of my Torah, they would be counted as strange." End quote. That's Hosea eight twelve. The um. The uh, rabbinic writing goes on to conclude, the many things are, speaking of the many things uh, that were quoted in Hosea, the rabbis say that the many things are the Mishnah, which is larger than the Torah. And God says, quote, if I were to write for Israel the many things, they would be accounted as strange by the Gentiles, end quote. And again, footnote number 14 in Haig's commentary shows that this was lifted from the Midrash Rabbah to Numbers. Okay, so enough of Haig for the moment. Let me conclude my commentary. I'm going a little longer just for the sake of establishing this um, uh, this perspective that I haven't really shared quite explicitly with my readers in the past. I want to pull a quote from a modern source, uh, uh, not from Tim Haig this time, but from an unbelieving rabbinic source. This is the Jerusalem Post, Post and I pulled this from their website. It's a commentary. I pulled this up. Uh, oh, this was... Um, this dates back about five years, uh, 2012, but uh, one of their um, writers, one of their authors, wrote a commentary uh, entitled, Ask the Rabbi, May a Jew Teach Torah to a Gentile? And I don't want to read all of it, but I just read the, read the first maybe few sentences. Quote, In contemporary society, non-Jews learn Jewish texts in many forums, including university and internet sites. In contemporary society, non-Jews... I'm sorry, I read that already. Sometimes this study occurs even without Jewish instruction, such as in South Korea, where school children study a selection of Talmudic stories. This phenomenon is the latest development in historical discussion regarding the propriety of teaching Torah to non-Jews. And then listen to these quotes. The Torah states, Moses has commanded us the Torah, an inheritance for the community of Jacob. 
That's a quote from Deuteronomy 33.4. This author goes on to say, he's a, who's actually Shlomo Brody, he goes, Brody goes on to say, deeming this inheritance the exclusive property of Jews, i got to pause and let that sink in, Deeming this inheritance the exclusive property of Jews, the sages prohibited Gentiles from learning Torah and Jews from teaching it to them. A strident prohibition was also expressed in the Zohar. While the Talmud elsewhere mentions that non-Jews were taught Torah, some of those cases were clearly under the co- coercive pressure of the dominant rulers. And uh, uh, Brody goes on to give, give some various uh, opinions from the different uh, Talmudic rabbis about some saying that, well, no, we should not keep teach the Torah to Gentiles. But then he also goes on to explain that Maimonides uh, uh, decided to kind of relax this concept of not teaching the Torah. Maimonides actually took a novel approach of distinguishing between Muslims and Christians. And Maimonides contended that the prohibition was intended only for Gentiles who did not affirm the divinity of scriptures since they might come to distort the Bible's meaning according to their mistaken misconceptions and cause confusion within the Jewish community. Maimonides actually goes on to say that Christians who believe in the divinity of scriptures will at best come to believe in the Jewish interpretation and at worst cause no harm, therefore the prohibition does not apply to them. So the point I just wanted to bring up by quoting and looking at this particular article is just to reaffirm the notion that this idea that the Torah is the sole possession of Jews is still firmly entrenched within many Jewish circles today. And then lastly, before I close my commentary, let me just look at one other author real quick. For those of you who are with me on the website, on my in, in live commentary, as I'm going just a little bit over, um, you'll notice that I've got... Um, I've got a web page pulled up from www.jstore.org. By the way, that other quote was from www.jpost.com. This one's from JSTORE, which is a a website that offers uh, quite a a rich resource of Jewish literature for anyone to either rent or own. Uh, In other words, you can purchase it. Many of it you can read online for free if you create an, an account. But they have a they have an article called um, an article from a book from a rabbi by the name of Elchanan Adler, and the book is entitled "The Sabbath Observing Gentile: Halakhic, Hashkafic, and Liturgical Perspectives." And just the first few again, the first paragraph is the only one I want to read. Uh, this was this this was published. Uh, let's see, when was this put out? It's not that, okay, this was uh, the fall of 2002. I think this is from journal number 36. So, um, I just want to read just this first paragraph. This is from Rabbi Adler, who who holds the uh, Eva Morris and Jack Rubin Chair of Talmud at the Rabbi Isaac Elkanon Theological Seminary, Yeshiva University. Here's what he writes, quote, while the notion of commemorating the divine rest associated with primordial creation would seem to bear universal import, it is surely no coincidence that the mitzvah of Shabbat was assigned solely to Am Yisrael and not to B'nai Noach. So, what basically he's starting out by saying is that Shabbat was given to Israel. It was not given to the sons of Noah. What does this mean? It means that he also believes that Sabbath was given to Israel alone and not to the Gentiles. He goes on to say, Moreover, not only is a Gentile absolved of the obligation to observe Shabbat, he's actually enjoined from doing so. Hence, the Talmudic dictum, which we have here quoted in Hebrew, Goy Shishavat Baya, I'm sorry, Goy Shishavat Hayad Mitzah, which basically translated as a Gentile who rests on the Sabbath incurs a death penalty. That's from um, from that's, that's actually from the Mishnah Sanhedrin 58b. And the, the rabbi goes on to say here that the mitzvah of Shabbat, the mitzvah being the commandment of Sabbath, in particular, should be perceived in uniquely Jewish terms, is evident from its designation as an ot, which is the Hebrew word for sign. It's a sign between HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which is God, and B'nai Yisrael, which is the sons of Israel. And this is highlighted, the rabbi says, in Parashat Kitisa, so which, which is a Torah portion out of the first five books. 
So we've got this uh, quote from Parashat Kitisa, which is out of the book of Exodus, 31, verse 13 and 17. And the rabbi quotes it out uh, here in Hebrew. He says, Ki ot hi b'nei uvenechem l'doratechem. B'nei uvein b'nei Yisrael ot hi le'olam. And uh, basically that's, it shall be a sign between uh, between me and the sons of Israel uh, unto them. And the between me and the sons of Israel, it is a sign forever. I'm, I'm translating Hebrew of b'nei uvein b'nei Yisrael ot hi le'olam. So that's what uh, is quoted in Exodus 31, and the rabbi is saying that this is proof of the rabbinic dictum here that was quoted in, in Mishnah Sanhedrin 58b of Goy Sheshevat Hayamita, a Gentile who rests on the Sabbath and curse the death penalty. The rabbi here, uh, Elchanan, goes on to Elchanan Adler goes on to say, this motif becomes ever more apparent in Agadic sources, which characterize the relationship between Shabbat and Knesset Israel as an intimate and exclusive one, that of a bride and a groom. Additionally, a particular sharp formulation of this theme appears within the Shabbat liturgy in the paragraph beginning, and he has another uh, a quote in Hebrew here, it says, V'lo natato Hashem which is recited during the Shacharit Amidah. And, um, and uh, the God, the Lord our God, uh, gave unto le uh, um, uh, uh How am I, How should I translate that? And he did not give the Lord our God uh, unto the Gentiles uh, so the the this um, this sign or uh, uh, the Gentile peoples things like that. I'm, I'm trying to translate it some uh, uh, this this Hebrew here. Uh, so uh, he goes on to, to conclude. Just in this, this is just uh, the opening part of his book. I didn't. I, want, I don't want to read the whole thing. The article that he's that he's going to share with us on this website. He says will provide a comprehensive overview of numerous halakhic and hashkafic considerations. Halakhic is kind of how do we walk out toward, and hashkafic is uh, uh, what we might interpret as a um, or define as a, a kind of a, a philosophical view. Hashkafa is kind of philosophy. Uh, so, halakhic and hashkafic considerations that relate to the prohibitions of goy shishavat, meaning goy is the kind of the, the Hebrew word for Gentile or non-Jew, uh, the prohibition of a Gentile from keeping the Sabbath is what goy shishavat kind of translates as. It will also explore how this rule adapted by, was adapted by one of the Rishonim, these, these, these ruling sages, to interpret a nebulous phrase that occurs frequently within the Shabbat liturgy and to elucidate various liturgical references in accordance with this interpretation, end quote. Okay, so basically that's, I, I went a little longer because I wanted to show my students that this idea that I'm purporting in my commentaries that the Jewish people of the first century held to a common belief that the Torah was the sole possession of the Jewish people and that therefore if a Gentile wished to enjoin covenant and I'm sorry to to uh, engage in Torah uh, participation. He first had to become a Jew. Do you understand my 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 position? Torah was the sole position of the Jewish people, Jewish Israel. So Gentiles were forbidden from keeping the Torah. Particularly, they were forbidden from from engaging in the covenant sign, the Mosaic covenant sign, which was the Sabbath, sometimes under pains of death. This this I think was the prevailing view of the Jews of Paul's day, even if the later rabbinic sages such as Maimonides seem to relax this view in favor of the the uh, the, uh, the Noahide uh, laws and things like that. I don't think the Noahide laws were, were, were officially formulated when Paul wrote the book to Galatians. So, I still think that Paul was operating under the idea that he knew that the Judaism's, his Jewish contemporaries, the, the non-Messianic Jews, were believing that the that the Torah was a Jewish-only document, and that's why they were very strongly pushing the Gentiles into the proselyte conversion ceremony. You understand? So I think that's a better way to understand the book of Galatians, and I think we're going to get a lot of mileage out of reading Paul with this very strong possibility in mind uh, that the Torah was thought of as a Jewish-only possession. Okay, with that, I'll go ahead and shut down the commentary tonight and uh, give the general dismissal. For those of you who were in my um, live class, you're welcome to stay with me, and we'll, we can have discussion for about 20 minutes or so if you'd like, 
and discuss this idea. And when we return next week with week 54, we'll start with Galatians chapter 3, verse... Oh, let me jump over to my commentary. Uh, we'll start with verse 6 and start talking about Abraham um, as Paul's model of faith for both Jews and Gentiles in that Abraham's genuine covenant membership was recognized by God, not because Abraham was the father of the Jews or or even because he was the father of the Gentiles. In other words, not because Abraham was circumcised or, or even because he was uncircumcised. Rather, Abraham is the model of faith because he believed God and it was counted to him. His faith, his genuine faith, was counted to him as righteousness, as dikaiosene. We're going to start unpacking this verse next week. Okay? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to sit once again and share with the students my thoughts and my opinions to the book of Galatians. I pray that you will uh, continue to help me to understand truth and to continue to seek your words for an understanding. Lord, I don't uh, think that I've got this this great uh, understanding of the of, of the book of Galatians because I'm such a brilliant scholar or because I can navigate through the Hebrew or the Greek or any such thing. Lord, I readily recognize that I, that it is by your grace and by your mercy that you open the words of the text to us as students of the word and that you are indeed commanding us to study to show ourselves approved, that you are commanding us um, to to continue to seek your face and to rely on your Holy Spirit, indeed to recognize that by your Messiah, Yeshua's blood, that there is only one way to be counted as dikaiosune, one way to be credited as righteous. And so, Father, we recognize that you alone are the, the author and the finisher of our faith, that you alone have brought us into genuine covenant with yourself, and that you alone are sustaining us and keeping us by the power of your word. Thank you for raising us up and causing us to be a voice in this dark generation, for causing us to be uh, a, um, a, uh, a light to those around us, to the surrounding nations, for helping us to praise the name of our Messiah, Yeshua, Yeshua to not to be ashamed of, the, of his gospel. Uh, give us holy boldness as we uh, go this week and encounter those around us who don't yet know that Jesus is Lord and that he alone can save. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome responsibility. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God walk in all his ways to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>